Welcome to City on a Hill's podcast. This week's podcast can be downloaded on iTunes or our media library at chccny.com. It's so good to be back at City on a Hill. It's been a little while. I concluded a series on Mark. And now I think I'm going to be hanging out in Isaiah in my own church for much of the fall. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, my name's Tom Richter and I'm a pastor of a church in Jamaica, Queens, and our church meets in the evening time. So I'll preach here and have become friends with City on a Hill over the years, and then I'll race back to Queens and in time for my own church uh, tonight. I am so excited to hear about what God has done in your church through the Community Outreach Compassion Sunday. But God willing, I'll be here next Sunday to preach as well, and I'll get to see this video. So I look forward to that, and uh, I'm excited. Uh, the, I know the last time was a great blessing to me. And uh, all the good ideas that happen here, you know, we steal and use at uh, my own church. So thank you. <laughs> you know, the reason I'm, I'm in Isaiah, the reason I kind of came to this, I'll just give you a little background where my head was at. I've started to realize what you believe about God. This is an A.W. Tozer quote. <clears throat> what you believe about God is the single most important thing about you. Let me retweet that. Uh, what you believe about God, he says, is the single most important thing about you. Now, why would that be? Start to think about, you know, so much of your habits, so much of your behavior, so many of your actions, they stem from what is your view of God? The old timers called it your doctrine of God. What is God like? I mean, the life of the life of faith takes just that. It takes faith. And over and over, you come to church, you come to Sunday, you're going to be pressed on things. You're going to be asked to step out on faith faith before you can step out on faith isn't it reasonable to ask who is this god that's going to catch me what is he like if he's a hundred percent good i can step out on faith if he's 99 percent good i wouldn't even step off this ledge i mean i'm sure you guys are nice but i don't trust you right right what what who is this god that we're entrusting ourselves to so what is god like there's no more fundamental question than that and into this enter the prophet isaiah the breadth of isaiah's view of god is unmatched he's the most frequently quoted prophet in the new testament and if you are in a dry spell if your heart feels unresponsive to god or cold or dead what remedy is there and i suggest it's getting a clearer view of god if you think about the supremacy of god you don't have to tell me to go evangelize and tell people about the goodness of god right if i'm blown away by the goodness of god my anxiety goes down i don't doubt as much i mean there's so much good things happen when we realign our hearts around what the bible says what god is like and who god is and that's where we find ourselves in isaiah chapter 6 i'll give you a little background chapters 1 through 5 the prophet's been talking about really the spiritual failure of God's people. God has uh, poured into his people. He drew them out of Egypt. You know this. He promised Abraham he was going to bless the world through his seed. The children of Israel, he, he pulls them out of Egypt, out of bondage, puts them in the promised land, tells them, obey my commands, obey my laws. I will be your God. You will be my people. And you know they fail to do that. They fail to live up to their end of the covenant. God uses these nations. They've got Egypt over to the west. They've got Assyria to the east. And, and there, there's, there's fear there. God is using these nations to bring them back to line. He's sending them prophets. They're unresponsive. And then this happens in Isaiah chapter six, starting in verse one, the prophet writes this in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. In the year King Uzziah died, 
You need to understand something. For 52 years under King Uzziah, Judah, the southern kingdom, if you know your Israelite history there, if not, just understand the children of God, the people of God, particularly in the southern kingdom, has experienced 52 years of real wealth and general stability. That doesn't mean that all 52 years were perfect for everybody, but generally there was a sense of stability, a sense of optimism. Ironically, it was not because Uzziah had been such a great leader. I don't know if you guys can imagine hypothetically a country where we give way too much credit or blame to our leaders, but in fact, there are many other circumstances that happen that make a country sometimes be prosperous, right? But Isaiah was such, uh, it wasn't that, excuse me, Uzziah had been such a great leader, but Assyria really had had weak leaders and had been distracted by other things. They were sort of the military superpower of the ancient Near East. And so Judah was doing okay. And as is the case, when a nation does okay, they tend to take their eyes off God. They put their hope in earthly leaders. And now King Uzziah has died. And their hopes for this relative peace have died. And so the nation's looking around, no doubt scrambling. They're no doubt in great anxiety and fear. They're thinking, if we can just get our leader in office, if we can just get a majority of our political party in office, then we'd be okay. We need to get back. We need to make Judah great again, right? We need to make, we need to get back to being a superpower like when we, like when we had David. Remember King David, King Solomon, Ronald Reagan, and whatever your time to look back on is and go that, that's when we had it, right? Whatever it is, if we can just get our political people, and people are losing their minds over this, they're scared to death. In fact, maybe maybe Isaiah goes to the temple to pray because there is no king. There's great uncertainty and anxiety and national fear. And I know I'm joking, right? You see the, 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 the obvious illustrations here with presidents, but this is different. Not even a president. They don't have a king. The throne is empty. So Isaiah goes to the temple to pray. And what does he see? Praying perhaps for a king to be on the throne because there is no king on the throne. And what does he see? He sees that there is, in fact, very much a king on the throne. In the midst of all the earthly chaos, there is a king who is doing what? What is the Lord doing? He is scrambling onto his throne because he just received enough electoral college votes to be God. Is that what he's doing? What's that verb? Sitting. He's been there. He's not scrambling to get aboard his throne. He is seated, not climbing up. One time your pastor, Pastor Linda, told me, she said, Tom, you know why in Revelation 4 they describe the throne room of God and they end the description by saying, and the sea in front of the throne was as still as glass. You know why it's a glassy sea? I said, no. She says, because nothing shakes the throne room of God. And I said, that'll preach. I put her bullet in my gun and I've been shooting it ever since. That will, that will straight preach. She's right. You see that? He's not scared. God's not up in heaven going, man, how are we doing in the swing states? He's not scared. He's not scared. High and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. He saw the Lord. And then look, above him stood the seraphim. Now these are angelic beings. Don't think angels, little naked babies. I don't know where we got that. These are, these are God's Navy seals. Okay. These are his messengers. Every time somebody saw an angel in the Bible, they didn't go, you'd be great on a Hallmark card. They, they fell to their face and said, are you going to kill me or what? Right. 
Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. Isaiah sees these beautiful heavenly creatures. Now how many of them were there? We don't know. But in, a, in Revelation chapter 5, this is, I'm, I'm going back to Revelation because there is another prophet, John, who also sees a vision of heaven's throne room. And there, he says in Revelation 5.11, in terms of the heavenly creatures, there are myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. So there's at least a thousand myriad. I don't, I don't know what a myriad is. There, there's a bunch, okay? Millions. Can you imagine millions of God's Navy SEALs flying around, filling heaven with antiphonal worship? Two wings. They're covering their feet, perhaps modesty before the king. Two flying because they are quick to do God's will. And two to cover their face. Now, they don't cover their ears because they got to hear God and obey. The reason they cover their face is because they have trouble. These glorious heavenly beings have trouble looking directly, continually upon the holiness of God. It's like trying to stare at the sun. It's a bad idea and you can only do it so long before you have to cover your eyes or you'll go blind. These heavenly beings to whom we would be blinded are blinded by looking at God. Now, how holy is the holiness of God? You see? And they called to one another. Look at what they say. They called to one another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. In the Old Testament, they didn't have... They didn't have a means of making emphasis, uh, right? I mean, you couldn't just sort of write along in a scroll and then go back and put bold, right? And then italicize and then underline with like a thumbs up emoji. So what they would do instead is they would use repetition. Did you know this is the only thrice repeated adjective in the Old Testament? Like if you wanted to say something was pure gold, there's a Hebrew expression. It's like gold, gold. Make sense? You would, you would emphasize it twice. There's only one time we see thrice repeated. And it's used of God. Holy, holy, holy. And that's the attribute I want us to focus our minds around today. His holiness. What does that mean? His holiness is simply His Godness in all of His attributes. All of His works. And all of his ways. Isaiah here, he sees these beings that are straining the limits of language to say that God alone is God. He is not like, a lot of people think God is like us, just a lot bigger and a lot nicer. He's saying, get that idea out of your head. He's in a a different category. He is completely other. Uh, there's many ways to illustrate this. I go back and forth between C.S. Lewis and A.W. Tozer, and today I'm landing on Tozer, but they, they, they both get it. The idea that, that, that God is not like, you know, our big buddy in the sky. God is not like a really big version of a human or a really great version of a human who lasts forever or something. Tozer says, we must not think of God as the highest in an ascending order of beings. God is as high above an archangel as a caterpillar. Because the gulf that separates the archangel from the caterpillar is finite. Whereas the gulf between God and the archangel is infinite. God is so far in a different category that it doesn't matter. He's not like a single cell organism all the way to archangel. And then at the end of that line, there's God. No, it's just he's not even in that chain. Notice too, they describe his attributes. What they sing in heaven's throne room is holy, holy, holy. This is just straight adoration of God. Beholding God. Because of the particular attribute of who he is. It's not even what he's done that blows him away. You know, and gratitude for what God's done is good. Let me repeat that. Gratitude for what God has done is good. 
But there comes a point when they're so moved by the holiness of God. This is not what you've done for me. This is not, they're not singing mercy, mercy, mercy. You've shown mercy, right? They're not singing forgive, forgive, forgive. Okay. They're not saying you helped me out. They're not saying money, 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 or final exams, final exams, final exam, right? Single people. They're not saying spouse, spouse, spouse. The Lord is full of glory. No, 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 that, All that's good. You've got to be grateful for all that stuff. No, this is who he is. Holy, holy, holy. Now, that kind of holiness, when we talk about holiness, when we talk about God being completely other, not in the same category as a human, what does that do to us as humans? When you encounter God as completely other, is that pleasant? Like, is that nice? I mean, is that, is that sort of sweet? To know that you are in the presence of a being who is wholly other than you and who has created you and whom and, and around whom seraphim fly and can't even look upon this being without going blind. I would suggest that kind of holiness is not so much sweet as it is threatening. No. As long as you have a God you can control, you're good to go. Because then God is just sort of your personal assistant. You can just sort of make the God you want, put him in your back pocket, and pull him out when you need to feel better about yourself or you need a parking place. Or whatever it is, you know, and you, or you need healing. You just sort of pull him, and then you put him back in, right? But this is the God that you didn't make. This is the God who made you. Now what? C.S. Lewis says it this way. I guess I'm back to Lewis. Uh, Lewis says it this way. As long as you're praying to the God that you've created, you just sort of pray. But does it ever strike you when you're praying? God, not to the one I think you are, but I'm praying to thou who thou alone knowest who thou art. When you alone know who you are. And there's a sense that you've communicated and revealed yourself to me, but there's a, a, another sense in which I don't have you in a box. I don't know who you are. It gives you chills. Makes you go, wait, wait, wait just a minute. Who are we dealing with when we're dealing with the holy? Well, <laughs> here's what happens. Uh, this is a little bit more than chills. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. Doorposts shake. When there's a, a natural disaster, you go to the strongest place, you go to the basement or the, you ever heard that? Get in your bathtub, you stand in the doorpost. Why? Because it's the strongest place. So the strongest place in the temple is shaking. This is not like the picture frames are rattling. The doorposts shake, the strong points falter, and the house begins to be filled with smoke at the sound of these seraphim. A couple points I want to make. Number one, uh, I have at my church from time to time complained about the volume of our praise band. Never again. Because they've never been so loud that the doorposts have shaken. Right? More serious point. I can imagine something. Ponder this verse for a moment. I can imagine something so loud that a building would shake. I can imagine that. I can imagine air moving sound waves so loud. I, I get earthquakes. Okay, my last name's Richter. I, I'm fun. I, that all makes sense. <laughs> You never thought about that. Every time there's a natural disaster where millions of people die, they think of me. My name comes up. I can almost imagine sheer volume causing an earthquake. I get that. What I cannot imagine, what I still cannot get my mind around, is something being so loud that stuff catches fire. Because that's what happened. The volume was so loud, stuff catches fire. I googled, can something be so loud it can catch something on fire? Google laughed at me, but <laughs> apparently 
There can be so much air moved through at a certain decibel that a speaker will get a little bit warm. So I cannot imagine what this would be. I tried to think of some means of illustrating a sound so loud that it would catch fire. And so beforehand, I actually, and I don't know if you're, you know, if you have a weak heart or whatever, I don't know if you need a warning, but I asked the sound folks, just that we're just going to help here with verse. So you may, yeah, you may want, I'm kidding. I'm not going to do that, but you, right. I mean, if the preacher ever says, I'm about to play a sound so loud, something's going to catch fire. I mean, you know, it's not really going to do that. But can you imagine that's what's happening? I try to think of, is there any way to illustrate this? This is the closest I could come. In 2001, uh, the New York Yankees had made it to the World Series and were coming back. It was the first game back sort of after 9-11. Remember, they had to postpone the season a little bit that year. And it's such a cool story. The Rocket Roger Clemens was going to be pitching game three. The first two games were in Arizona. And they were coming back. And George W. Bush throwing out the first pitch. And the bald eagle landing and all that. My buddies and I were coming from New Jersey and thought, wouldn't it be cool if we could just get some tick... Um, perhaps we could procure tickets in a legal way and... <laughs> You know, make our way into the game or whatever. And as Providence would have it, uh, that's not important to the story. The fact is, we got, we got in there with the bleacher creatures and we're watching this thing. And I mean, right, what no one warned us about was the first game after 9-11 and the, the flag from the World Trades up there, whatever, was that they would do these uh, F-15 fighter jets were going to fly by. Yeah. And when that happened, I mean, the place shakes. And I mean, the, the city is obviously still very much on edge. And uh, I wish that I had, you know, if I'd been there at the very beginning of the game, but again, we had to procure some tickets. The, the point is, they probably announced it. I just remember thinking, I, I just shook in fear. And in that moment, some would say cowardice. I prefer prudence. I just, I wanted somewhere to hide in that moment. And I'll never forget that moment of, of, of fear. That there's such a noise that it just invokes fear. This is what I want to, this is what I want to say. We literally shook in fear. Isaiah sees doorposts shaking in fear and catching fire. And that's not even the voice of God. That's the voice of the little beings he created. With no energy expended, he creates beings that can talk so loud stuff catches fire. I remember in that moment feeling those F-15s. I just wanted somewhere to hide. And that's the other point I wanted to make. Where can you hide? The whole house was filled with smoke. Or go back one verse. The whole earth is full of his glory. Where are you going to go from the glory of God? Where can you hide from the holiness of God? The holy God is filling the whole earth with his glory. God is not the man up there. He's out there. He's down here. In fact, he's the reason there is a down here at all. Why did he create a world? He didn't need us. No, he created a world to be filled with his glory. We, unfortunately, as humans, have filled this earth with monuments to our own glory, be they kingdoms or businesses or hit songs or athletic victories. But the truth is better than all that. All around us, creation is a continuous expression of the glory of God. Did you realize it's God's will to make this earth into an extension of his throne room in heaven? Do you realize it is God's will for his kingdom of glory to come into your life and for his will to be done in you as it is done in heaven? Listen to me carefully. Heaven is expanding and it's coming for you. It's spreading in your direction. If you will accept it and enter in, heaven is taking over. Yield. You ever, you ever think sometimes at church where you, you feel so close to the presence of God? You ever had this moment? 
where you feel like God wants you to do something or say yes to something or forgive somebody or get right in some way. And you just go, you know, and the music's playing at the end and they're doing communion and all this. And you're just like, I I just got to get out of here. I got to get out of here. You know what you're doing? You're trying to escape the inescapable one. You're trying to get out of here. His whole, the, the, the whole earth is full of his glory. And for a brief moment, maybe you can go find a place to hide. Maybe you can go watch some football or you can distract or you can go have a good lunch or you can do those things. But eventually, listen to me, you say no enough. There, there's only one place that, that God will eventually make that is devoid of his glory. That's hell. It's the only place where if, if, if you desire a place where there is no God, hell is the only alternative. It's the only place, quote unquote, safe from the convicting, traumatizing glory of the presence of a holy God. Now, if your version of God is a big buddy in the sky, then no wonder you don't have any doctrine of hell. But if you if, if you if your doctrine of God comes from the Bible, you realize hell makes sense. It's the only thing that could make sense. So what's the human response to this? Well, Isaiah's puts it pretty well. And, and I said, woe is me. Woe is the uh, equivalent there of calling down the curse of the covenant. Remember Jesus in the New Testament, he'd say, blessed are you to this, blessed are you to this, and woe to you who are breaking the covenant. Woe to you who are doing this. He's calling it down on himself. He says, woe is me, for I am lost. Hard to improve upon the old King James. Woe is me, I am undone. Isaiah, here's the funny thing. <coughs> Isaiah... It, it, and maybe not funny, it strikes me a lot. I always used to think of this as Isaiah's call, right? Here's the beginning of his ministry. It's not. He's, he's had five chapters. He's been a prophet. This is a Christian preacher. Or I, well, no, that's sort of anachronistic, but close enough. This is a prophet of God who five chapters later goes, woe is me, I'm undone. Does that strike you? You see what I'm saying? This is a, this is someone who is, this is not a, just sort of a kind of a lost rebel, you know, wandering in. He's in the temple. And he says, woe is me. It's scary to apprehend the holiness of God. Uh, you know, uh, Sigmund Freud and others, they say that, uh, you know, humans are very scared by the storms of life. And so we have to invent a God to make us feel safe because the world is very stormy and bad. And it always strikes me, if that's true, Christianity has totally failed at that. Like literally, there was a moment in the New Testament when uh, there were all these storms, right? The disciples were in the boat and the storms came up and they were scared to death. Remember this? Jesus, is the way who Christians, Christians teach that Jesus is in fact God in the flesh, okay? So, so the, the divine is in the boat with them, right? And they're scared by the storms of life, literally. So they get up there and they're, ah, they're we're all going to die in the storm. So they go back to Jesus and they go, wake up, Jesus, wake up. We're going to die in these storms. Remember what Jesus does? He just gets up, looks at the storms crashing. He's like, silence, be still. Now, did everybody go, thanks, Jesus. With Jesus in your boat, you can smile in the storm. Like he makes us feel safe and warm. What does the Bible say? It's very clear. We were scared of the storm. Now we're really scared of the you. Who does that? Nobody goes, what a warm, fuzzy feeling. He commands wind and rain. They go, that is unexpected and horrifying, right? The Bible, you can read that. It's in Mark. They, said they, were, they were scared of the storm. It says, then they, they feared with a great fear, is how it's worded. You had fear. Now you got great fear. 
And that's, that's what Freud doesn't realize. If Christianity is creating a safe place to hide from the storms of life, we didn't do a very good job. This is not an invented religion. This is the Holy One of Israel. And he's, been, he's filling the earth. And Isaiah sees that. And have you been there as a believer? At some point, you've been convicted, ruined. He says, I am undone. I am lost. And then he says this, For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for now my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Why the lips? Seems kind of random, doesn't it? I mean, your feet would be sort of dirty, I think, back then. The prophet walked through all the mud to get there. I'm a, you know, or, or I'm an unclean deeds or something. Why lips? Why not, I don't know, ears or something? I don't know. <clears throat> Could it be because he's already a prophet and the very best he has is his lips? Now follow me. Lips to a preacher are the arm to a Baseball pitcher, feet to a dancer, fingers to a pianist. It is his pride, his joy, his livelihood. And if anything he's ever done right for God, it's been with his lips. Listen to me carefully. The holiness of God does not lead Isaiah to repent of his sins. Everybody gets that. The holiness of God leads Isaiah to repent of even his righteousness. The holiness of God does not just say, of course my sins need to go. He knows that. He's saying even the very best I have to offer God is not good. Here's a key to life. Every human being has a glue that holds you together. The very thing that you would say, well, no matter what, at least I got that, right? At least I can count on that. And the holiness of God reveals the inadequacy of your glue. You feel as if your glue is being vaporized, as if you're undone, as if you're lost. Isaiah is saying, well, the reason I'm okay, no matter how bad I do or whatever, hey, at least I'm a preacher. He sees the inadequacy of that. Now, for some of you, it's your intelligence. For some of you, it's your missional behavior. For some of you, it's your professional skill. For some of you, it's your family. The very best you've done, the very best you've ever offered God. And when you behold the holiness of God, you say, even that is filthy rags. He says, woe to me, I'm a man of unclean lips. Perhaps some of you would say, woe to me, I'm a man of unclean thinking. I'm a woman of unclean kids. I'm a straight-A student of unclean grades. I'm a good person of unclean good deeds. You see? My very pride and joy turns out to be marred with evil. Listen to how George Whitfield says it. Uh, this is kind of an uh, old, old language, but you'll get the point. When a poor soul is somewhat awakened by the terrors of the Lord, then the poor creature, being born under the covenant of works, flies directly to a covenant of works again. And as Adam and Eve hid themselves among the trees of the garden and sewed fig leaves together to cover their nakedness, so the poor sinner, when awakened, flies to his duties and to his performances to hide himself from God. In other words, you say, well, you know, I, I've done some bad things and I'm starting to see the holiness of God. And so I immediately go, ah, I'm, I'm undone. Let me, let me do some better things again. Let me, let me sort of improve my moral behavior, right? So he goes to patch up a righteousness of his own. Says he, oh, I'll be mighty good now. I'll reform. I'll do all I can. And then certainly Jesus Christ will have mercy on me. But before you can speak peace to your heart, you must be brought to see that God would send you to hell for the best prayer you ever put up. 
You've got to be brought to see that all your duties, all your righteousness, as the prophet elegantly expresses it, put them all together, are so far from recommending you to God, so far from being any motive and inducement to God to have mercy on your poor soul, that he will see them to be filthy rags. He says, I don't know what you may think, but I can say, I can't even pray, but I sin. I can't preach to you or others, but I sin. I can do nothing without sin. And my repentance needs to be repented of. Even my tears need to be washed in the precious blood of my Redeemer. Our best duties are as so many splendid sins. Woe is me. I'm undone. Like the one thing I was counting on when I came to church was, well, they may make me feel guilty for a lot of bad things, but I've done a lot of good things too. And the preacher gets up there and is like, your good things probably even worse because it makes you filled with self-righteousness and pride. Well, good grief. What do I have to offer a holy God? Is all, I mean, the only thing I can bring to God is nothing? You got it. You got it. And when you get that, that all we have to offer God... It's nothing. We need some good news. We need some good news. Good news. Please be good. Yes, good news. Verse 6. Couldn't last another verse. It, it, in sermons, you're supposed to get to the whole hope thing. It's called preaching the gospel. Let's get to that now. I'm depressed. Then what happens? You know the answer. There are Christians in here who already know the story, but you still get a little teary-eyed, even though you know the story, don't you? It's the good news of the gospel. You never outgrow it. Listen. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. What's the altar? The altar is the place where they would sacrifice the lamb. No doubt as they're sacrificing that lamb, the blood drips down on the coals. The angel uses tongs because angels have nothing to do with atonement. That's between God and humans. And he takes those tongs, lift up that coal with the blood of the lamb on it and does what? And he takes it. And verse 7 says he touched his mouth and said, this has touched your lips. See? Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. The atonement is the resolution. Out of the darkness, from the altar, the place where sins are paid for. And I, I mean, Isaiah knew this in his head, but there was this moment. The only way I know to explain it is he knew it in his head. He was preaching all this stuff, but somehow it, this hit his heart, you know? And I want every one of you, I want me to be brought to a place where I don't just think about what Christ did for me on the cross to be something in my head. I want it to be in my heart. And both of those things, both of those notes, I want cranked all the way up. That I am more guilty than I imagined. That's that whole business about it. It's not just my bad deeds that would send me to hell. It's my good deeds that would send me to hell. I have nothing to offer a holy God. We've got to crank that up. And just as much, we've also got to crank up the utter grace of God. That He loves you while you are still sinners. I don't know if I can give you self-esteem, but I can give you self-awareness and point you to God. You know what I mean? Your guilt is taken away, not by any good deeds you can do, but by what Jesus did for us on the cross of Calvary. When He stretched out His arms and died on that cross for all who apply the blood of the Lamb to their own life, they're saved. The Bible says everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Atonement. Well, let's wrap up. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Now, look, I don't know if you believe in the triune God, God, the father, God, the son, God, the Holy Spirit. But to me, that's a doctrine that the Bible teaches from start to finish. He could, whom shall I send and who will go for us? One, three, huh? Yes. 
<clears throat> anyway, you could say that's the royal we, but the, come on, man. Trinity everywhere. Then I said, here am I, send me. And he said, go. God says, go. Say to this people, here's your mission, okay? <clears throat> I need I need, I need, I need an applicant. Here's the job. Keep on hearing, but don't understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. It's an interesting commission. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy. Blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Wait, so you want me to preach and the more I preach, the more hard-hearted they're going to get. Well, how long is that going to last? That sounds horribly unpleasant. And I said, how long, O Lord? He said, till the cities lie waste without inhabitant, houses without people, and the land's a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, the the desolation will be 90%. A tenth remain in it, it'll be burned again. Like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. There's a little prophecy buried in there. Let those with ears hear about who that holy seed of Israel would be. That would be the stump upon which you would rebuild. But my, my point is simply, he pretty much lays out in terms of a preacher. Okay, I'll just speak as a preacher. This is sort of my gig. This is what I do, you know, for a living. Just, just. From my perspective, this is absolutely the worst job description in the history of the world. What he says is, I need somebody. God's looking around and he says, okay, uh, I, I have a job and I want you uh, to, to go out and preach and uh, preach in such a way that everybody's going to stop listening to you. In fact, they're going to reject everything you say. And not only are they going to reject everything you say, you are never going to be appreciated. No one is ever going to thank you. Isaiah, after any sermon, no one is ever going to take you to Applebee's afterward and be like, that was a really great message, Isaiah. You know, let's talk more, maybe partner with you in ministry. You will be rejected. Church tradition says that he was, in fact, at the end of all that faithful preaching, cut in half. So, you know, I mean, he left that out at least. But the point is, make, you know, you're going to be an utter failure. <clears throat> I need someone. I have a job. I need a prophet who will spend 30 years preaching to people who will only despise and ridicule you. I need someone to take a job that will get no support, no affirmation, nothing. And any, any applicants? Any volunteers? And Isaiah says, me. Me, 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 me. I'll do it. How does that make any sense? I mean, you're going to take a job. We're going to be a total failure. I'll tell you how it makes sense. Isaiah is no longer afraid. Period. He's no longer afraid of being a failure. He's just been revealed as a failure. The cat's out of that bag. His lips are not worthy before holy God. So do you know how liberated you would be if you understood the holiness of God like that? The reason he's saying, here am I, send me, is I'm yours to command. It doesn't matter what the world thinks. What I have seen the holiness of God. You think any fear of man's going to stop me? That was enough fuel for 30 years of ministry where he was hated every year. And he says, send me. Oh, but you'll be a professional failure. I'm, listen, the only one whose opinion around here really matters is the one who just commissioned me. So I'm good. Let's talk about some application of the holiness of God and we'll be done. 
how does the holiness of God, if you take me seriously, if you leave here and you go, okay, this week I'm going to meditate and ponder on the holiness of God. Maybe I'll read through Isaiah 6 again, or I'll read through some of the Psalms. You know, if you just Google the word holiness in the Psalms all over, worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. How does the holiness of God, if you do that this week, how's it going to apply to you? Everywhere. I mean, I could just, I could just sort of whet your appetite for what you're going to see this week, but you start to connect the dots. Your gratitude and your joy is going to skyrocket as you meditate on the holiness of God. Let me explain. If you've been down, you know, depressed, sad, moping around, you've been blue, ponder His holiness and it will actually increase your gratitude and your joy. Here's why. We, we sing about the grace of God, but it's His holiness that gives you the proper perspective. You can read about the grace of God and what He did for us, but when you read about His holiness, you begin to ponder the size of the debt that was paid. And the size of the debt increases the magnitude of the goodness of God, which heightens our praise, and nothing overcomes depression and sadness like praise. See? Your gratitude is going to go up. Your joy is going to go up as you ponder the holiness of God. And what he did for us in the humility department, pondering the holiness of God will give you perspective. If I leave here and fly to Arizona, I am I'm the same size. And when I get on the plane and I fly high above everybody, I think, look, as the plane takes off, I think, look at those little people down there and their insignificant lives. They're just driving little cars. See how the cars are so small when you're on an airplane? And they look at the little houses. It's so funny. They look so big. Even Manhattan. It's so, so small. And then I land in Arizona and I drive to the Grand Canyon and I stand before the Grand Canyon. It's so vast and I am so small. Here's the irony of that whole story. I'm the same size the whole time. What's changed is my perspective. What's changed is what am I beholding? And when you stand before the holiness of God, are you really going to hold your neighbor's feet to that fire about what he did to you or what she did to you? Come on. Won't the holiness of God drain us of any self-righteousness? People who have to be right all the time. Go to Isaiah 6 for a while. Then come back and let's talk. You start to realize, man, I've I've got some self-righteousness. My lips are unclean or whatever your best thing is. Even that is unclean. Who am I to judge another sinner? He is holy and I am humbled. What about your anxiety? Listen, some of you right now are living in the year King Uzziah died in your own life. The stability that you've enjoyed for 52 years is suddenly being rocked in your own life. You're going through your own second Chronicles 29 or whatever it is. And you're living in that fear. You're scared about your future. You need to look into the face of the holy God. Listen, if your future depends on earthly kings, you're right to be scared. Most of the time, our future depends on one earthly king, King me. I I don't mean me. I mean, you, 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 you know what I'm saying? The problem is not, I, I hear a lot of preachers say, oh, there's a lot of uncertainty about the president. Well, whoever the president is, the problem, that's true. That's true. You need that. You need that. Everybody, you know, calm down. God is still on the throne. But the king I'm most worried about, the king that I'm, the president that I'm most scared is going to get elected in November is president me over my life. That's the president that needs to be impeached and put God back on the throne. The reason we're so scared is not just because other people are going to control us who are bad and evil and wicked and liars or whatever we call these. But the the reason I'm so scared is that I have to be the king of my own universe. But what if I stand in the throne room of the holy God, how free I would be to say, I'm not the king of the Tom life. You are. I'm yours to command. 
And if you look at it like that, like he could give me anything. And right now he put me in Long Island with this beautiful fall day. Of all the places God could put me, I'm going, I got it pretty good. And here I was complaining about all these things I didn't have. And I'm going, wait, wait, whoa, whoa, you're the king. You're controlling me. I'm not the king of my life. What about your faithfulness? Hmm? Some of you struggling with burnout, been serving a long time. If you're told you must be effective, you must live in such a way as to make a big impact for God. And all the while, God is up there grading you or somebody's grading you or there's some invisible line that you have to meet. No wonder you're burned out, right? Do you understand? In other words, that invisible line, and it's different for different people. For some, it's, it's the next big gig. For others, it's the next financial milestone. For some, it's, it's, you know, for actors, it's booking the next engagement, right? <clears throat> for some people, it's having the perfect, you know, clean house or, or for having these kids that make it. There's, there's this invisible line and we're like, oh, I'm just not there until I get it. God didn't put that line on you. God didn't ask you to meet that. You did. But if we look at the throne room of God, he is the holy one of the universe. That means he didn't need me. Christian, you and I are his to command. And if he tells us to preach a lifetime and no one will listen for the glory of God, then that's what we'll do for the glory of God. Here's the point. Be yourself for the glory of God. You're his to command. And if you're not yet a believer, I would want to say this. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, can I just stress the urgency of this message? Every time you hear the word of God preached, it, this, this business about make the heart dull and the ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see. Every time you hear God's word preached, you're, you never leave the same. You'll either leave a little bit closer to truth and to God, you'll say yes, or a little bit further away. In other words, you'll be a little more softened to the truth of God or a little more Hardened, but you're never the same. And if you think you can hold the gospel at arm's length in critical detachment, that very posture reveals you're already deadened and you need more grace. And don't tell yourself, well, if God would only perform a miracle in my life, then I would believe and open up. Jesus did, and the people who saw it became more hardened. I just want you to know the urgency of sitting under gospel preaching and saying no. It's a deadly game you're playing. To constantly push God away, the the next time it's going to be just a little harder and a little harder until there's no hope. But, but the opposite is also true. To say yes to God this morning and whatever he's calling you to do will make it just a little easier the next time. And a little easier. He can soften. His grace can do that. And that's why I challenge us all to meditate upon the holiness of God this week. Okay? Let's pray. God, you are holy, 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 and the entire earth is filled with your glory. Thank you, Lord, that while we were still sinners, at infinite cost to yourself, you paid that price for atonement for us and our salvation. As we turn our attention now to the Lord's table, I pray you would remind us in a new way, just like Isaiah had been preaching for a while, but got that fresh vision of you. I pray that you would, for this church, for my own church, for my own family, for me, grant to me a fresh vision of your holiness, God, and what you did for us to bring us into your family. We trust you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to City on a Hill's podcast. For more resources, visit us at chccny.com.